You're listening to the Supertalk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Hello and welcome to Super Talk. This is part two of our session with Jack Beetson that we did during Reconciliation Week, where Jack spoke to AIST staff about the work that the Literacy for Life Foundation does in improving Indigenous adult literacy. In episode one, Jack gave a great overview of the foundation. In part two, we have some AIST staff members asking their questions. Jack gives some fantastic insights into creating safe environments for Indigenous Australians to improve their literacy and vastly improve their communities, as well as how he keeps himself motivated and resilient in the work he does and the people that inspire him. We hope you enjoy the episode. Jack, out of curiosity, so the takeoff from the campaign, can you talk a little bit about some of the resistance that you encountered at the beginning or if you encountered any resistance and kind of how you were able to move past that? Yeah, I've got, I've got a funny story on that, actually. It's a good question. It was when we first started out at World Kenya and um, there was a guy there and we'd been at sort of political opposites most of our lives. You know, he, he was a, had a bit of a profile statewide and I guess I had a bit of a profile too. And, and, and we, we had just very different political views about how the struggle itself would proceed. And he was from there. And when I went out there to the literacy campaign, he came into to my office at the land council and he said, look, Jack, the best way to do this is we work with the kids and the people that can read and write. He said, we'll all move along. He said, and bad luck about the rest of them, if they can't keep up, we can't wait. And I said, well, that's a funny thing. I said, because I sort of think the opposite way, we should all maybe slow down until we bring them along with us, you know, so that we're all moving together. And he said, well, you know, I just think, Adult literacy is a waste of money. I said, look, can you go to the to any media outlet and tell them that, that literacy, funding literacy is a waste of money? Once the first classes started and he could see how hungry people were to learn, he turned completely around. And sometimes, not in every community, but in a lot of communities, you had that same response because it's very difficult, like I said, for people to actually analyse long term because you're working with people that are thinking about will there be food on the table tomorrow will they come and cut my electricity or gas off tomorrow and when you're talking about literacy and the benefits of it that's a very long-term thing universities are great because what they do they they get it they know that the people that we're working with now that are learning to read and write very very few of those people will end up going to university but what they do know is that if they get people learning to read right now, their children and grandchildren probably will because they'll value learning. And, and so therein lies the answer to all those questions. When that comes up, it's very difficult. It's a really hard thing to do is to get people to think too far down the track if they're wondering whether they're going to have a meal tomorrow and whether they're going to feed their kids. And you come in and say, listen, it'd be really great if you learn to read and write. This is the best thing you can do. But it might be 20 years before you have the comp to know that's going to be there tomorrow. It's just, it's a hard sell, but you just got to do it. And just keep encouraging people. And that's why, why it becomes a community-wide campaign. We actually interview or we train local people 
to go around and survey every single household in the community and, and talk to the community not about what it is that we want to do. We talk about what we've done in other communities and do they think it would be a good idea and would they like to do it in their community. And we only go when people call us to come. So we never go and promote our program. The community calls us first because the critical thing with this is that the minute you enter the town or the community, you have to start handing over ownership of the campaign immediately. So our aim is to get in, give ownership to the community and stay there and support them to do all the work. You know, so, so we train them, we have a person there, there'll be a Cuban person there as well, working with them, maintaining quality control. They get independently assessed on how they've actually moved on the Australian core skills framework. So that gets done totally independently of us, where somebody comes out and measures where they've gone. Now, we're the only literacy class of any sort that I know in the country that is actually doing that. And this was one of the big issues that the uh, Productivity Commission had. All this funding was going out into programs, but nobody was actually monitoring and evaluating whether it was working or not. And I said, we don't know. We could be spending great money, but we could be wasting a lot of money. So what we did right from the get-go was got Philippa McLean, who actually wrote the Australian Core Skills Framework Assessment, and she does ours in every community. So she's a leading expert in Australia. And when we went to Santa Teresa, the one out in Alice Springs, <laughs> when I went out there, I said, Philippa, how did it go? I was, it was almost a question I didn't want to ask. Because you know, I thought, oh, God, this could be just an absolute disaster. I thought, do I ask or don't I? And I said, Philippa, how did they go against the framework? And she said, Jack, it's just amazing. She said, it's absolutely amazing. She must have seen a relief and she said, Look, I had the same feeling. I'm thinking, oh, this could be just such an unmitigated disaster because they've gone through and, and they've got to do everything in their own, own handwriting. So you get a bit of an idea that they've improved. But when somebody comes in totally from outside, and, and Philippa went and spent two weeks there first so they could actually get to know her a little bit before she did any of the assessments, and, and that's how it worked. And, and that's probably one of the things that I'm the proudest of is that we got onto that really early and, and maybe that's because, you know, me and a, and a few of the others that were involved, we spent a fair bit of time in our lives monitoring and evaluating different programs overseas for the UN and stuff. So it's part of what we did. So we've seen the value in it and the importance of it right up to the point <clears throat> that we were the recipient of a three-year research grant and we did a data linkage on that research. But the early indications are that by linking their data around criminology, health and education, that people have gone on, you know. So people have, have engaged less with the criminal justice system, their health has improved and they're, they're going into continuing education or, or in fact got jobs. So we compared the ones in, that did the campaign in each town in I think it was five or six towns we compared the people that did the campaign that actually came into the classes with people who didn't. And there's a lot of work in managing that type of research because you've got to go and talk to people, they don't care, they didn't do it. They and you're saying, can we use your data <laughs> to, to measure other people's success or otherwise? And, th and there's a lot of ethics around that sort of research, as you can imagine, 
it's a very, very big job. I don't think I'd ever want to do it again. I won't be, I'll be handing that ball over to somebody else, I'll tell you. But it's very, very interesting when you look at it in that light because it just gives you a, a picture of someone's life, you know, what's what's actually changed, you know, because we can argue that and, and get out there and be really confident about doing it but and arguing that case. But you still got to see it. You've actually got to be able to prove that. Jack, I've got a got a question for you. Uh, thanks for your time today. Uh, when you when you talk about literacy, I suppose it's it's tempting to assume that you're talking about English literacy. But yeah. is there any is there any um, thinking or uh, any approach uh, around formalising people's literacy in their own languages, and and, and whether there are any mm. any solid benefits in that in terms of their Things like getting jobs, licences, as, as you talked about before, as being some challenges. Yeah, look, there is benefits in it because, you know, it's around more, it's more around confidence. When, when people learn to, to read and write in any language, then that at least they're confident around their own learning capacity. The problem with it is learning in their own languages is, and I'm not saying it's a problem, but the, the, you need to be learning too because... When you buy a packet of Panadol, the instructions are not going to be in Pidinjara or Walpri or Aranda. They're, they're in English. And one of the things that I actually despair about, Jeff, is, is in our communities, there's lots of household where nobody in the household can read and write. And they'll come from the doctor or the pharmacy with a prescription or with the medicine that they've gotten uh, by a prescription. And all of the instructions about how much to give, at what intervals to give it, whether you eat it before, take it before or after food, all of that's committed to memory. And I know what I'm like with my kids. If my kids get sick, I'm the most frantic person in the world. I, I can't understand hello. You know, they're sick. You know, I'm dying a thousand deaths. But when those people go home, they're administering medications, you know, to children, to themselves, or even to elders in their family. And a lot of that is committed to memory. Now, if they're doing that with multiple people on multiple medications, it's not possible to commit all that information. So uh, while I agree and I think it's a solid foundation, I think the world we live is in one is predominantly spoken in English. That's our world. Um, and there's 300 different Aboriginal languages. You know, so even if you, if you talk Aranda, or maybe six or seven or eight other languages like Banjo, who I was talking about earlier, it's going to be very isolated to Central Australia, if that's all you knew. So while this, there are some benefits around self-esteem, confidence, you know, building that capacity to learn, uh, in terms of being out in the real world and being able to, to move and, and live in the two societies, you have to know English. Jack, can I ask you a question about how you create a safe environment for learning. So, you know, when you talk mm. about, you know, adults who only know a few letters of the alphabet, you know, mm. that's that's heavy to overcome mm. that, to think, yeah, okay, I'm going to put myself in an embarrassing potentially situation mm. <clears throat> in order to try and learn. How do you create a safe space to, yeah. you know, allow people to participate? Yeah, that, that's, it's a really important question and it's one we work hard at all the time. But under this campaign model, all the messaging in the model is a positive message. It's all around the walls. It's, you know, it's written up. 
and they're talking about it. When they've asked to create a sentence, they're asked to talk in a positive. They've got to create something positive when they use a word. So it's positive messaging from the day they come in. Prior to coming in, that's when we do all that work with the community around how important learning to read and write is for the community. So we actually take it away from the individual and we talk about community growth and that the community is really supporting and wanting you to learn to read and write for the community, not 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 for yourself, because then it becomes really about you, you know. So so it's really about taking the focus off the student and making it about the community and getting everybody to help you get them into class. Like in Brewana, you know, people would go into the paper shop and the newsagent would say, hey, have you got class? Hey, you go into class. And so everybody was really positive about getting them into class. That's how you deal with it because you're dead right. It's such a significant factor. Right down to the point that when, when we pick the students up, we don't do it in a bus because you don't want people saying, there they go, they're getting on the school bus. And, and they told us that. We don't want you to pick us up in a bus. <laughs> so we ended up getting twin cab youths to go and pick people up, you know, every morning. And and you have to have local people doing that because it'd be no good me going, I wouldn't know whose dogs are going to bite and whose dogs aren't, you know, but they do. And you get, honestly, you get grandkids chasing grandparents out and grandparents chasing grandkids out to come to class. And so all of a sudden <clears throat> the shame about it is not about it's not about you not being able to read and write. It's about how do we build our community, and and that's what they're doing. They're building communities. Chuck, that whole um, thing about building a community. I'm wondering if it manifests itself in a way where people that do become literate they go and teach other members of their family or mm-hmm. other members of their community as well. Absolutely, and um, particularly with um, grandparents and parents reading reading to kids, that just happens on such a level. Like one one girl out at um, Brewarna. She was about to be imprisoned, you know, for seven years. She actually went into court and stood up and spoke for herself and said, look, I'm, I'm doing the literacy course. I'm learning to read and write. I haven't had any alcohol since. I haven't engaged in any violence since. And I just want to learn to read and write because I want to be able to read and write to some of the young kids in the town. And that young, young lady, she ended up getting a licence. She got a motor car. And she adopted two young boys. And there's photos of her everywhere reading to kids. <laughs> like, and that's what she did it for. And so I think about not what we've done for her, but what contribution she's actually making to everybody else. Can I ask a question about you, Jack? Why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've, you've, you've picked some pretty tough jobs for yourself. You know, how do you, how do you keep yourself going, um, you know, how do you how do you build resilience? I mean, and how do you stay so positive in light of, you know, the the fact that the gap isn't closing, and um, you know, all the challenges that your people have had and continue to have. Yeah, look, in a word, and and I remember Philip Ruddock asked me a similar question about something else uh, quite a long time ago, and and we we're at the Human Rights Awards in Sydney on on International Human Rights Day, and he said, Jack. What is it about you, you know, like what, what is it? He said, every time I've had a conversation with you, he said, oh, I've visited some of the work you've done and I was doing a fair bit of work with street kids at the time and he said, what is it? And I said, look, don't um, turn this into science. <laughs> I, said, I said, it's really simple. I care. I actually care. 
you know. And I know a couple of my colleagues, you know, uh, academics at the University of New England. When we first started this in World Kenya, we were on the riverbank there one day and they said, Jack, look, in all seriousness, do you do you really want to be doing this for the next 10 years of your life? And I said, look, if we don't do this, who will? Like, who will? Like, who, who who's actually going to go out and, and work with these mob, you know, to, to try and do this? And Because the communities themselves are broken. They're absolutely broken. And a young girl in Burke, when we were there, so I said, Lillian, what do you think? the real barrier to all this is. And she said, our communities are broken. They're broken. And so when, when Bob actually asked me, you know, do you really want to be doing this for 10 years, it was probably the easiest yes I've ever come up with because it really does matter. And the answer is getting enough people to care to make it happen. Hey, Jack, um, I'm just curious to know who inspires you. Oh, gee. I get inspired by a lot of people. Anything I've done and and been acknowledged for belongs to so many people. And different people have inspired me just throughout my life. You know, my mum, my mum, I'd say, was like my greatest inspiration. She, she, um, uh, my, my mum was probably one of the most brutalised women I've ever met in my life that I know of. But she was just so strong and stayed strong for us and instilled that in us, you know. And even going back to Eva's question, you know, no matter how bad things got, and, and like we grew up in extreme poverty, but no matter how bad things got, Mum would say, don't worry, son, there's always someone worse off. And I'm thinking, well, where are they? <laughs> I, I want to see them. You know? And <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> and... But she, that's how she was, you know, and um, she, she was, she'd be my greatest inspiration, you know. There's not a day goes by, like my mum's been gone a long time now, but there's not a day goes by that I don't think about her and, and draw on that strength. And she would be the key person if it was one person, but I could name 500 or 1,000 people below that. You know, one of the things that inspired me, and this was in Timor and Growing up, and I, I grew up in poverty, I was kicked out of school at 13 and, you know, so life wasn't a breeze. But I was in Timor and this person, probably at 15 or 16, came up and just said, could I have some of your water? And that that affected me so much because that's all he wanted. He, did, he didn't ask me, could I, did I have any money or any, could I have some of your water, you know? If I'd have had a truckload of water, I'd have left it there. It was just... But that drove me again, you know, and I tell that story. It really affected me that all that person wanted from me was some water. Wow. You know? So I draw inspiration from everyone. Yeah. Is there a thought, I guess, that you want to leave us with, Jack? I mean. Oh, yeah. Look, I, I'd leave you with this. It really is. People often say, what What can we do? You know, and and it, and it, for a lot of people, they say, well, that, that's a really difficult question, and it is. It is. But what I would say to people in this context is the best possible gift you could give any Aboriginal child is a literate mother. And if you can contribute in any way, whether it's, you know, financially or through a book or through 
just support, just talking about us to your friends and what we do, just contribute that way because there is no greater gift for our kids than that. And I say that my eldest brother was 15 years older than me and his wife, who was a non-Aboriginal woman, she made me sit down at the kitchen table every night and have my own little spelling competition. And I hated her for it. I wanted, I wanted to be out with the other kids, throwing stones at each other, doing whatever. I didn't want to be there. But she did it every night. And when I think back now, you know, and, and she inspires me and she's also passed away now. But when I think back now and I think, God, what would have happened to me if she wasn't there, if she hadn't have been there and, and really, you know, made me do that stuff? you know, um, because a lot of my own family can't read and write. They struggle with reading and writing. So so for me, that's what I'd be doing. That's what I'd suggest is in whatever way it's possible for you as an organisation or as individuals or as families is whatever you can contribute. And I don't mean that in a financial sense, in any sense, you know, because everybody's got different capacity. Is whatever you can contribute to bringing about a society, an Aboriginal society in Australia, where our kids have got literate mums, would be the greatest gift you could give. That's all for this episode of the Super Talk podcast. A very big thank you to Jack Beetson for giving us his time and wisdom and everyone at the Literacy for Life Foundation. For more information, head to www.lflf.org.au. Until next time, bye for now.